0: mom's mom, my grandmother, was a rather petite lady. Um, She was, you know, 98 pounds soaking wet kind of deal. She was about 4'11", 4'10", and itty bitty, just a tiny lady. And so when we would eat together, we'd share a meal together, grandma understandably couldn't always finish everything that was given to her, everything she took. And you know i think we all have that happen to us sometimes right we then so we if we're out at a restaurant and we buy food and we're unable to finish it we take it home in a doggy bag right we take it home and we put it in the fridge we eat it another day um, maybe the next day for lunch i did that on a regular and still do that often but grandma would take home i guess the things that i never would have in a restaurant right i would i would if i had three french fries left on a plate Probably not going to put them in a doggy bag and take them home. My grandmother probably would have. If I had an ounce of milk in the bottom of a glass, and I specifically remember my grandmother doing this at home with us one time when she was eating with us. She had an ounce of milk in the bottom of a glass that she couldn't finish. And so she put it in the refrigerator. And I remember opening opening the refrigerator one day and going, looking at my mom and going, Mom, what's this glass with like this much milk in the bottom? She's like, that's grandma's. Grandma put that there. I'm like, why? There was this piece of me, and I was a kid, but there's this piece of me. It's like, why even, number one, why didn't you just drink it? It's an ounce of milk, right? Done, finished, end of discussion. And if you weren't going to drink it, why save it, right? And that was really the first time that it kind of occurred to me that people didn't always live the way that I was accustomed to living. Right? And we were by no means wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. But my grandmother had lived through the Depression. That period of time where everything was, literally everything was scarce. And everything was valuable. Because you didn't know if you would get that ounce of milk if you threw it in the trash. You didn't know if you'd get it the next day. It might not be there. But if you've lived through something like that, it can begin to develop something that's called a scarcity mindset. And I don't know that my grandmother had this. Just This was just the example that kind of popped into my head as I'm thinking about this. This pervasive feeling you can have of not having enough, right? And so you are defensive almost of ensuring that you take good care of everything you have because tomorrow you may not have anything or maybe even later today. You won't have anything. You could have a scarcity mindset with time, right? I don't have enough time, or I won't have enough time to finish something that is important to me, and so I defend that time. Maybe we can have a scarcity mindset around finances, right? I'm I'm afraid. I'm always afraid. I'm not gonna make it through the month, right? I'm gonna run out a month before I run out of I run out of money before I run out of month, right? And I'm going to be left strapped or without, unable to feed my family or unable to pay the rent. And and I've certainly been in that place before. But there's a difference between being there once and recognizing this is a problem and feeling like even after you've got enough, this is going to continue to happen or it could happen at any second. It could be a scarcity mindset could could connect you with not feeling like you have enough information about what's going on in the world. And you feel like you've always got to have more you've got to absorb more because it's just it's not enough i need more i need more because i don't know when or how this is going to play out the world that is falling apart around us right i need to make sure i'm on top of all of it or it could be a scarcity mindset related to connection The people who love us, right? That we don't have enough or won't have enough, or that that person in our lives that we do care very much for is going to suddenly disappear or could be gone in an instant. Well, while that is true, and while I think there's wisdom in recognizing the frailty of life and recognizing that things change constantly, nothing stays the same, there is a difference between recognizing it and obsessing over it. And essentially, a scarcity mindset obsesses over what we might not have tomorrow or what might be of very little value or presence in our lives that we view as needing to survive. The scarcity mindset has been diagnosed by scientists for, for decades and it actually has some pretty significant mental health impacts. Scarcity mindset actually, according to studies, can lower your IQ. By up to 14 points because you are so obsessed with running out of stuff or not having enough that you lose the capacity to problem solve. You lose the capacity to hold on to information or to plan or to focus and it even makes it harder for you and I to control our impulses. If we are always scared that we're not going to have enough, we become more impulsive right? When there isn't enough, we get scared, right? All you have to do is look back at when COVID started and all of a sudden every store in the country was running out of toilet paper, right? That's a, a scarcity mindset. Suddenly there's not going we might not have toilet paper tomorrow, right? And so it, that wasn't the problem. Manufacturing was still working. We had plenty available. People were just hoarding it because they were afraid they might not have it tomorrow. A scarcity mindset, when we don't think there is enough, can lead us to being angry or defensive, and which which brings us to the study that we're starting this week in the book of Galatians, um, where the people of God, frankly, are treating the grace of God with a scarcity mindset, as though it is a scarce commodity that somehow runs out. And the book of Galatians is written by the apostle Paul. Paul is a church planting missionary. Right, He goes from church to church or goes from area to area, plants a church, gets it off the ground, gets people in place to drive it forward, and then he moves on to the next town or the next area. And, and, and he continues to do this. He's a, a traveling missionary in, in every sense of the word. And so after uh, Paul leaves a town, he stays connected to those churches by letters. They they correspond back and forth as they continue to help one another grow as Paul encourages them and teaches them and, and strengthens them and sometimes gets in their face when they got off track. And this is Paul living out this passion for God's call that he has and that he has conveyed on them. In fact, he often calls his people to continue to be passionate in their faith, to continue to live it out, to search out God, to tell others who Jesus is, and to move forward, to grow in Jesus Christ with each and every day that comes, but not to stray from the things that he taught them, because he's the one who taught them the gospel in its truest, cleanest, and purest sense. His letters were written largely to go to many churches in a given area, in this in this case the area of Galatia or Galicia, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And he they were intended to be read aloud and often distributed, often taken to other cities within this larger area wherever Paul had been or or those who came behind him had been and had planted churches. And so it was meant to make rounds. It was rarely written to one person. The book of Galatians is just such a letter. And Paul, we're going to begin this discussion today in Galatians, well, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read out of the NLT this week. Um, I tend to be Christian Standard Bible CSB, but I think the NLT does a very good job of kind of, of making this simple for us to kind of grasp and move on toward um, understanding. But I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I want you to try to pick out the word grace, where Paul uses it, and the kind of grace that he is talking about. And frankly, the kind of grace that the people of God in Galatia are treating as scarce. So read on with me. Galatians chapter 5. First, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. It says this, This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people, or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and and ever. Amen. Love the way that Paul starts his letters, right? He starts all of his letters with this message of life, right? I am an apostle Paul who brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And and, and I'm appointed by him to do so. And then he wishes grace and peace. This is kind of introduction you give to family and friends. You're wishing them the best and frankly, wishing them abundance. And he also always, always, always gives glory to God. But in the midst of this beautiful introduction where he is reminding them that he is family, right? That he loves them very much, that he planted that church and has never forgotten them and is always walking with them and just wants them to come to know the Lord more and more with every day that passes. In the midst of that, he takes the time at the beginning to say, he is an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ. That Greek word dia there means by or through, like that the diameter of a circle, right? It's the 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 cross section of that. Paul wants us to understand that it was not by men or through men. They didn't appoint him. There wasn't an election, right? There wasn't a harumph in the room of, yeah, that's the guy that we want to do this. It was a choice that that Jesus made to call. Paul if you know the story of how he came to know Jesus Acts chapter 9 is where we would begin there where where Paul is is a persecutor of Christians quite frankly he's trying to kill them at every opportunity he can kill them and throw them in jail and believes he's doing the right thing but on the road to Damascus one day he is blinded by this light and he hears this voice you know I've had something like that happen to me once before I was driving somewhere in my, my wife's car and, um, someone, um, T-boned me. They came sliding. It was rainy and they came around a corner sliding around a corner and they just popped me and T-boned me and ran me into the dirt. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm kind of getting my wits come about me. And, and I hear this voice, just this voice from above go, are you okay? And I'm like, what? They're like, are you okay? Your airbag went off. And I went, who is this? (laughs) Right? And they're like, oh, it's OnStar. (laughs) So I clearly didn't have the moment that Paul had. But Paul had a legit moment where he is on his way to persecute the people of God in Damascus. And suddenly there's this blinding light and this loud sound that the others heard and couldn't understand, and, and, he, and he says, and it's this voice that only Paul can hear clearly, and it says, Saul, which would have been his name before Jesus renamed him, Saul, Saul, why do are you persecuting me? I don't even know what that would look like for real, right? I know how terrified I was when the OnStar guy came on. I can't imagine having actually Jesus show up and say, I'm challenging you. I'm challenging you to change the way you are looking at the world. I'm challenging you to understand that I am God and I want you to be his missionary. And Paul would become just that. Paul was appointed by God and knows maybe more than anyone else about the power of God's grace. This man who was a persecutor and killer of God's chosen people, right? Jesus suddenly gives him an opportunity through grace to not just stop killing them or but to also serve him paul was sent to the galatians this message that he preached was that this message the message of god's grace that comes through jesus christ but some men came after him and they made it something else let's keep reading and start pick up in verse 6 of chapter 1 it says I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, which, by the way, is the gospel, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. I say again that we have said what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. These people who have come along and are troubling the Galatians—they're what's called Judaizers, meaning that they have—they have a Jewish tradition. They are Jewish through and through, right? And they have come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Well, they've come after Paul into Galatia, and quite frankly, did this in other places too, where they would come in and say, it is great that you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is wonderful that you have been saved, right? Because Paul, in this first section here, eloquently stated the gospel, right? It, it indicated that we are the lost. That's the, the the meaning of the word rescue in verse four of the section we just read before, That We are are those who cannot save ourselves. We are helpless and lost, and he has saved us. He has saved us by grace through faith. As Paul would also write to the Romans later, we are saved by grace through faith. The Judaizers have come along and said, that's amazing, but there are these other things you got to do. You also have to, Uh, adhere to our ceremonial laws and our traditions. Circumcision in particular was one of those things that you had to adhere to. You've got to be like us, look like us completely, right? Alter your body like us in order to fully understand and experience the grace that comes through this message of salvation. And Paul is saying, look, that's not how this works. The Judaizers are saying, well, you can follow Jesus, and that's awesome, and we want you to, but first, you have to behave like God's people should. You have to take on these ceremonies and these traditions. But that isn't the gospel that Paul communicated, and it is certainly not the gospel that Jesus communicated. He goes so far as to call this a different gospel, but meaning it's one not driven by the grace of Jesus Christ. If you've ever um, tried to make a football team, a basketball team, a baseball team at, your, at the high school level or the college level, or definitely the pro level, they have something called tryouts. And, and tryouts is really about going out on the field and proving you deserve to be there proving you have all the skills, you've already developed all the skills, you have all the natural gifts and talents, and all they have to do is do a little tweaking and they can see where you fit into the scheme they have built, right? They see where you fit in and they say, yes, we want that person because they fit into this mold that we have built, into the system that we have built, the scheme that we have built, and so that we can succeed. The problem is that Jesus doesn't call for tryouts, before saying, it's time to become part of my team, before offering them an opportunity. And what the Judaizers are doing here is they're calling for a standard of behavior rather than a standard of humility, right? They need to fit the behavior of a good Jewish Christian, Messianic Jew, both and, not just Jesus, in order to belong as part of Jesus's family. I think we do some of the same, same things in the church today. Uh, we try to say you first have to find a behavior that fits, right, the behavior of a good Christian. And there's lots of do don'ts involved in, in that, right? Don't Don't cuss, don't smoke, don't get tattoos everywhere, don't sit down when you're supposed to stand up or talk at the wrong time, don't mess with the ceremonies and traditions of God's people. But you should also do. You should dress properly, give more, study more, and and quite frankly be happy most of the time. Or even you should keep the big issues to yourself so that they don't inflict on my world. Or maybe even crazier things like you gotta follow the right political party because only the right people follow the right party. But Paul has a... Pretty strong message that he repeats twice <laughs> for any human or even angel who says, you got to act like one of us before you belong as one of us. And that message is a curse beyond him. Like I said, Jesus didn't have tryouts before inviting the disciples to a belong. And e- even as they were learning from Jesus and walking with Jesus, guess what? They didn't exactly act like the perfect followers of Jesus, right? I mean Judas's story tells itself, Judas clearly never got it, but by the way, Jesus allowed him to b- belong in his circle, even without even knowing what jesus Judas was going to do, but it's not just Judas. if you look at Peter, Peter was impulsive and fearful and even argumentative with Jesus I mean. He's the one Jesus said to him, uh, get away from me, Satan. Nobody wants to be called that. But Peter clearly was not acting the part. James and John were known as the sons of thunder because they were loud, almost to the point of obnoxious would be my guess about pronouncing who God is, but probably everything, probably everything, including their own opinions. And there's Thomas, who was skeptical, right? We know that. And Paul, the man we are speaking of here today who wrote this letter, a persecutor of Christians, and an imperfect man, not an eloquent speaker. He didn't fit the mold that I don't think any of the other apostles would have picked to be one of the ones representing Jesus most fervently. And I, and you can gather that because they were flabbergasted when Barnabas presented Paul first for the first time to the Jerusalem council. They were like, you have got to be kidding me. Belonging matters more than behaving sometimes. The gospel of grace invites us to belong so that we might believe and then behave, not as man or men want us to, but as God is calling us to. I think one of the, the challenges we have here is a um, melding or a misunderstanding of two words that are critical to the gospel. There is mercy and there is grace, and they are definitely related, but they're not the same word. They mean different things. Mercy means relenting on a deserved punishment. It means choosing not to inflict a punishment that was, quite frankly, earned, right? Grace is providing an undeserved reward. It's not just to stay the punishment, it's to give To them instead. God's mercy, I like to say it this way God's mercy is what gets us out of hell, right? It's staving off the punishment. God's grace is what gets us as his people into heaven. There is a difference between simply not being in hell and being in the eternal presence of God. God's mercy led Jesus to the cross, his grace clothed us in his holiness so that God sees him when he looks at us again this is the gospel that Paul had communicated the gospel of Paul and quite frankly of Jesus that we are helpless and lost and in need of rescue that Jesus substituted his life for ours that God accepted that substitution and offers all who believe grace and peace adoption into the family of God and eternity In his presence. So, what does that mean for us? It means simply this it means believing is enough for us to belong. And that should be an encouragement to you because that means uh, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to fit the mold. You don't have to be good enough. And you don't have to wait to belong or shouldn't have to wait to belong in the family of God until you've fixed that stuff. The truth is God is inviting you to join him and be part of his family. Now you have to believe you have to believe that he is Jesus Christ, the son of God. He is your Lord and your savior, that he has laid down his life for you and that you are turning over your life to him. You have to believe that you have to, because see, here's the problem with the fitting the mold thing that we often apply because we like to be around people that are like us that look like us, act like us, think like us, and not just be around, but embrace. The problem here is that the mold is Jesus. He's the mold of who we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to act, and what we are supposed to consider to be our priorities. If we fit the mold of Jesus, then the way we approach the world is different. The way we think is different. The way we act is certainly different. Our priorities are different because he changes all of that. And the problem is that not one man or woman fit that mold. No, not one. It means we are called to do more than just put up with people that don't fit. It means we are called to embrace them, to encourage them, and to help them to belong. Jesus is did that for us because we certainly didn't fit the mold and we are to do that for others his grace covers a multitude of sins a multitude of mistakes both the ones we have made before and frankly the ones we're all going to make again and he still says I want you to be part of my family Jesus did that for us We're to do that for others. Grace is not a scarce commodity, and we shouldn't treat it that way. Grace is for all who believe, to invite them in to what God is doing with us and through us, to embrace them and lift them up. And we do it, as Paul would say, so that he may be glorified forever and ever. Amen.